Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. I don't doubt for a minute that it is possible to overuse the word historic uh, today, and we will hear that word as coverage of the inauguration uh, continues this afternoon um, and this evening when uh, the new president uh, attends a, uh, a big celebration that will mostly be uh, virtual, of course. But since it's still only, uh, you know, early in the day, we're going to use the word historic again, because that is certainly what today is. In a few hours, Joe Biden sworn in as the 46th president of the United States. I think we're all waiting to hear what he is going to say in his inaugural speech, even as the Capitol is under heavy guard and surveillance. It's a chilling picture. It's an eerie picture to look at um, the mall and the United States Capitol building uh, today. Meanwhile, in his final hours in office, President Trump granted pardons to 73 people, commuted the sentences of another 70, including some non-violent drug offenders, um, there were some noteworthy names. Uh, Trump's former chief strategist, Steve Bannon, uh, one of his top fundraisers, Elliot Broidy, and the musician Lil Wayne, who caused a lot of controversy when he essentially uh, gave his support to Trump in the reelection campaign. Um, also, we don't want to forget to point out that this is the day that Georgia's two United States senators will be sworn in later this afternoon. The new vice president, Kamala Harris, will swear in John Ossoff and Raphael uh, Warnock. So we have a lot to talk about today and just the right panel to do it. Um, Jim Galloway retired from the AJC on Friday, but we told you that he was going to continue, fortunately, being a part of this show. And Jim, there was certainly no way that we could do a show on this day without asking you to be a part of it. And I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for joining us today. What are your initial thoughts about today, Jim? Well, it, it, look, it's, it's, uh, I, I want to watch Republicans, quite frankly. I want to watch, I, I, uh, as, as we're, as we're recording this, uh, uh, Joe Biden is in, uh, is, is, uh, attending a mass with uh, with with Kamala Harris, and I, I think it's significant that Mitch McConnell is with him, and his wife mm-hmm. uh, Elaine Chao, the former uh, uh, transportation secretary. Uh, so I I, I I think that sends a signal. I I want to believe that Republicans understand that the day that the days of of total warfare uh, in in Congress are over, and and it's time to maybe uh, do whatever do what we can every. Uh, for everybody to do what they can to cut a, to cut deals on any number of issues. Yeah, and of course, that's going to be one of the biggest challenges that the incoming president faces. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as the show goes on today. Uh, we're also joined today by Dr. Andre Gillespie, professor of political science and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Um, Andre, you're the political scientist. Uh, is it Correct to call this a historic day? Are all inauguration days historic? Is this one somehow have special significance? How would you evaluate that? Um, I think 
every inauguration day is a historic day, but I think this one takes on a particular poignancy because of, you know, the riot that happened at the Capitol at the site of where this inauguration is taking place a couple of weeks later uh, because of just how disruptive the Trump presidency was. Uh, because of the significance of the issues that the country is facing at this particular moment. So, uh, you know, I was at the Capitol in 2009 when Barack Obama uh, was sworn in, and, and, and that was significant not just because of the history of the first African-American president, but also because we were in the middle of the Great Recession. And so if we think about sort of the gravity of the issues that our country was facing 12 years ago, just multiply that by, you know, a factor of three. That's what Joe Biden is inheriting today. Okay, thank you for uh, those observations. Uh, Edward Lindsay joins us today. He, of course, a former state legislator, state house member from Atlanta, uh, the Buckhead uh, area of Atlanta. Um, Edward, and I'm going to ask our other panelists, Theron Johnson, to respond to this when I introduce him a little bit more in, in an individual way in a moment. Um, we've got you've got a Democratic president uh, taking office. Uh, with the help of Georgia voters who elected a Democrat for the first time since 1992, and you have two Democratic Georgia senators to be sworn in later by the Democratic vice president, Kamala Harris. Uh, this makes it a very big day for the state of Georgia. And I, I'm wondering if you're thinking that the writing is on the wall that uh, more than ever, Georgia is tipping toward becoming a blue state and whether this day signals that in some ways. I would not say that that they were tipping blue. I would say very clearly that we are purple. Uh, We still have Republicans, however, firmly in control of every statewide office and also firmly in control of the Georgia General Assembly, both the state Senate and the state House. Those that wish to count Republicans out in Georgia reminds me of Mark Twain's most famous quote. Uh, you know, the rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. And I think the same can be said for Republicans in Georgia. Uh, you know, certainly the state is more competitive. And uh, in many respects, that's a good thing. Uh, but uh, but in terms of turning blue, I'd say that that's a little bit over optimistic at this point. Okay. And we are joined by uh, Theron Johnson. He, of course, was a senior advisor to the Biden campaign in Georgia. He uh, is the founder and president of Paramount Consulting. Theron, I, I would think this is an extraordinary day for you. You have been toiling in the vineyards uh, on behalf of Democratic candidates for a very long time. And you must look at what's happening today as a triumph for the work of your fellow Democrats in um, in accomplishing what you all have today? You're absolutely right, Bill. And there are so many campaign workers and strategic advisors and volunteers that listen to this show. And I just want to, again, thank them for their hard work in Georgia uh, for this term. But as you mentioned, um, Bill, and I was laughing with the chief about this um, when he was retiring. You know, I've been at this for 20 years in Georgia um, as far as running campaigns. And so, you know, my good friend, Ed Lindsay, I, I admire his enthusiasm, but I disrespectfully <laughs> disagree that we are a blue state. And one of the things that the inauguration uh, day does, Bill, it begins a new narrative. And so I definitely want to promote this new narrative that Georgia is a blue state. <laughs> okay, Aaron. Um, 
Jim, I want to make mention, uh, you know, we uh, uh, President Trump just uh, flew out of Washington, out of joint uh, Andrews Air Force Base for the last time on Air Force One. As he left, uh, there were a couple of notable moments. First of all, he wished the incoming administration great success, but refused or whether he refused or just neglected, he did not use the, wor- the words Joe Biden. He did not mention the man who beat him uh, in the race for uh, the White House. He becomes only the th- third, no, I think the fourth president who is not attending the inauguration of his uh, successor. The last one was Andrew Johnson, who refused to go to the inauguration of Ulysses S. Grant in 1860. Nine and it's Jim. It's a kind of an interesting story. They were mortal enemies, and two months before the inauguration, Grant had made it clear that he had no intention of riding in the ceremonial carriage with Andrew Johnson from the White House to the Capitol. And so, two months later, Andrew Johnson said, "Well, good luck then. I'm not coming to your inauguration." And, okay, so in some ways, this is a trivial matter, but maybe not so much when you consider that Biden's uh, made built his whole campaign around saying it's time to unify the country. And this could have been a moment in which there could have been a symbolic effort um, to do just that. But as you point out, Mitch McConnell's sitting in church with Joe Biden this morning. So what do you make of all that? Well, well, first of all, I would say that uh, that, that Donald Trump's omission of Joe Biden's name, I, I don't think we can we can consider that accidental. I think that's 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 that's, uh, that's, that's quite deliberate, uh, and and it it's uh, he, he from uh, from the just as he was about to board Air Force One. I mean, we you know he he threw some hints out there that he's going to be back. Uh, we will see about that. We will see what what happens with the impeachment trial, um, and 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 he has begun talking about forming a kind of a patriot party, not Republican, not Democrat, but a patriot party, uh, which I'm not sure a former president has done since Teddy Roosevelt with his Bulma's uh, party, which did not work out, but it did, if I'm not mistaken, lead to the uh, election of uh, Democrat Woodrow Wilson. So, uh, so, so, uh, so Republicans need to beware of, beware of that. Uh, one, one other thing I just need to toss out there. Yes, this is a big day for Georgia because we, uh, the, the state flipped, uh, gave Joe Biden uh, 16 electoral votes. We have two new U.S. senators, both of whom are Democratic. But one, one thing we have to remember also, we have a new voice in Georgia agriculture. A really, the most powerful man in Georgia agriculture is now David Scott, who chairs the House Agricultural mm-hmm. Commi- uh, Agriculture Committee. That's and and, and 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 you know, of course, Sonny Purdue is is his his term as as Agriculture Secretary ends at noon as well. So that's 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 an African American is going to be uh, the most important voice of Georgia agriculture uh, in D.C. And I, I think that's that's something quite significant. Um, it's going to be interesting to watch how Scott uh, moves forward. Theron, what's your take? And I don't know the answer to this, and and I'm kind of throwing it out out of nowhere. Um, Sonny Perdue certainly uh, spent a good amount of time in Georgia with farmers as as Secretary of uh, Agriculture. Um, 
And, and he did bring money to farmers here. But I, I have a hard time figuring out, Theron, whether Purdue will be missed by Georgia farmers. Anybody who wants to weigh in on that, who has a sense of that, please do. But Theron, what, what's your take on that? And then maybe, Edward, you have some sense of it. I totally agree with the chief. I think that Congressman David Scott, who, by the way, Bill, is a blue dog Democrat. I remember when I went to Washington with former Congressman John Barrow in 2005, after he won a very, very close election in 2004. But Congressman David Scott and Congressman Barrow at the time, they were a part of the sort of blue dog coalition. That coalition sort of is not as, as preeminent as it once was. But um, for him to have this chairmanship is significant, not only to just Democrats, but I believe that for those of us who know Congressman David Scott, he is going to be more impactful, Bill, than I think former uh, Secretary Purdue was because, number one, he has a, like Purdue, a White House that he can work with, but also he has a Congress that is Democratic, and he now also has a uh, Senate, and he has Reverend Warnock, who is going to really, I think, work very, very closely with um, Congressman uh, Scott, and i got to refer to him as Senator Warnock now because he will be sworn in later today. But they will work, I think, in, a, in sort of a very sort of shoulder-to-shoulder way to make sure that they're helping each other to fulfill some of the commitment and promises that were made during the campaign to make sure that our rural community in Georgia, particularly folks in the agriculture community, actually are at the table and they're getting the funding they need to regrow their businesses and continue to be a key driving sort of uh, workforce uh, in the state. Edward, to continue the Georgia theme in terms of today, whether uh, whether we're talking about David Scott in the House, chair of the Agriculture Committee, or talking more broadly about uh, President Biden and his relationship to Georgia, uh, given the fact that that uh, Georgia did vote for him for president, given the victory, given that they elected, we elected two Democratic senators, we as a state. Um, it does seem to me that 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 it puts the state in a favorable position in terms of uh, uh, needs that uh, state leaders may feel they need to have the White House engaged with. Yes, we're on good ground well, with the Biden White House. Yeah, well, well, let's certainly hope so. And, and, and I'm certainly optimistic about that. Uh, the fact of the matter is those of us who engage in politics sometimes lose sight of the fact that 90 percent of what happens in government is making the trains run on time and and is bipartisan. And and I applaud the fact that the Congress uh, chose uh, Representative Scott uh, to be the chair of agriculture. He personifies uh, a principle that I learned from his mentor, uh, which was in the state Senate, which was Mike Egan. Uh, he and Mike Egan worked closely together. And Mike Egan was my mentor when I first came to the House. Uh, he, he, and he told me this that I thought was very important, which was to remember that to make your friends permanent and your opponents temporary, uh, because, uh, you know, the person that you're working closest with uh, today may oppose you tomorrow. The person you're opposing today may be your best friend tomorrow. And Representative Scott personifies that. So I'm I'm very excited by that. Uh, but I do need to also add one other thing. You, you asked about uh, how uh, Secretary Purdue is perceived in the rural areas. Those of us in Atlanta may sometimes forget the hold that uh, that Secretary Purdue has on rural Georgia. Uh, he's still widely regarded uh, by those in rural Georgia and farmers in rural Georgia, and he's generally regarded as someone who is a very big friend to farmers. 
when he was Secretary of Agriculture. But like I said, most I, I do absolutely agree that folks like uh, like Representative Scott and if uh, Senator Warnock and Senator Ossoff follow his lead in terms of working across the aisle, uh, they can do a lot of great things for Georgia and hopefully will. You know, one of the things that I think is really important here is, yeah, while I don't want to be naive to the fact that it always helps to have friends and Georgians in high places when it comes to issues that are of concern to the state, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm looking for is a tonal shift, and that's also going to be marked by a shift in terms of how, uh, how, how you know, our federal government approaches us. Um, and, you know, it was helpful for Georgia to be a Republican state to, you know, have, you know, been the home of the Secretary of Agriculture in uh, the administration of a president who was very transactional. Um, and so we benefited from being on his good side. You know, there were places where, you know, if there were a natural disaster in a blue state like California, for instance, there were serious concerns and discussions about whether or not they would get federal aid because Trump didn't like them. And I hope that we move past that in, 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 in some way, shape, or form in this administration, not to say that, like, you know, you know that things don't happen um, or that this is going to be politics-free, but the promise of the Biden administration is a return to something that looks a little bit more normal and less petty. Um, and so hopefully that would render this type of conversation moot, that Georgia gets what Georgia needs because it is one of the 50 states of the union and not because of, you know, who we voted for in the last election. So, Andra, as long as the ball is in your court, let me start this question with you. In, in some ways, I kind of bury the lead uh, in the first part of our conversation uh, by not talking more specifically about the fact that we, we're soon going to have President Biden sitting uh, in the Oval Office. Um, he He's got many years of experience of working in a bipartisan way with members of the United States uh, Senate. He built his campaign around working to bring people together, uh, to bring decency back to uh, politics, as he described it uh, in the aftermath of Charlottesville when he announced for the White House. Um, so, And then, on top of this, we know that in this first day, he intends to uh, take action on a number of issues that— um, are, are not necessarily shared by both parties. He, he Certainly, uh, some effort to get a new COVID relief bill will find support, certainly from Democrats. It's not clear how much support it's going to get from Republicans. To pay. He wants it's a $1.9 billion package. Um, he's uh, mobilizing to get the, vir- the, uh, the vaccine out. Uh, much more broadly, we, we figure that's going to be a bipartisan effort. So just taking a look at a few of the things he wants to do, including uh, saying he's going to propose a massive immigration reform measure, just give us your initial thoughts on how difficult it's going to be for Joe Biden to start his tenure and establish some sort of bipartisan spirit. Um, well, I think it's going to be difficult. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not worth trying to do this. So, I mean, you know, the job of today is to set a different tone. Um, and we'll see sort of how effective that is. Uh, you know, the challenge in the issue is, one, there's still a significant chunk of the people who voted against him who actually don't believe that he is the legitimate president of the United States. And we want to see how long um, that sentiment actually persists and whether or not that actually eggs on leaders in Congress to be uncooperative. And then while Joe Biden is a very experienced hand, this context needs to be acknowledged. And this context is a very polarized environment. In fact, it's even more polarized than when he left office 
you know, in early 2017. And so he's going to have to figure out how to navigate that. And so, uh, you know, I think the strategy of reaching out to Republicans, of seeking bipartisanship makes sense to at least give people the chance to work together. But I think the question uh, comes as to what happens if they choose to not play ball. And so if we see continued sort of obstruction, if we see uh, people sort of, you know, fighting for the sake of fighting in order to maintain their own partisan position, then I think the true test of, of the Biden presidency is, is how he responds. Does he go unilateral and go executive orders or does he, you know, try again or does he vote? And we'll just have to wait and see. You know, one of the things I would say, Bill, is that I have mixed emotions. You know, I, I don't know if you remember, it was on this show, Bill, four years ago when I came on after uh, Hillary Clinton was defeated. And I promised you and I promised everyone that I was going to get in the game next time and that I was going to work hard to make sure that we regain the White House. And so the mixed emotions that I have and to listen to Dr. Gillespie, who always does a wonderful job of, of just stating the facts and staying in the middle. Um, but I do have to say that Democrats right now, we feel very emboldened. And we want to hear from President Biden. And I think the speech that we will hear today will be one that is uniting the country. But also, I think that you'll see moments and hear moments where he will definitely appeal to a Democratic base. We cannot forget that actually voted in a very, very high number to make sure that he won. I mean, if you just look here in Georgia, where you had African-Americans go from 27 percent to 31 percent in voter turnout, and you saw an increase in Asian voters and Hispanic voters in the state of Georgia. And we actually brought some moderate Democrats, most of whom are white and college-educated and suburban women, back to the Democratic Party. And so while I think he will focus on uniting the country and have a very moderate speech, we've got to make sure that we keep the base very motivated. But I think the second thing to what Dr. Gillespie, and I think Jim touched on this as well, is that you know, I'm just really happy to begin this new journey, uh, not only as a Democrat, but as an American, to have a president and a vice president bringing people together, being a president and vice president for all Americans. And there are going to be turbulence along the way. I just want to remind a lot of our Democratic listeners that, you know, Joe Biden is going to have to govern. And I think that's the one big thing that we have to prove. We prove that we can win campaigns in the U.S., and particularly here in Georgia. But now we got to show that we can govern. Um, yeah. Jim, uh, one thing that, that we haven't talked about, in, 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 and Ed, you can weigh on, in on this uh, too, uh, uh, and it happens with every new administration, uh, and I, it happens at, at a gubernatorial level too. Uh, the first one of the first things, aside from this slew of executive orders that that, that Biden is going to issue on whether it's on COVID or uh, or voting rights or 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 oil dr drilling or or whatever, is that his administration is is going to conduct an audit to see what the state of the federal government is right now because uh, because this transition has been so rocky, uh, it's uh, it's been information deprived. And and generally, when the the first thing an administration does when it comes in in is it, it it tries to figure out where the where where the government is and what blame can be laid on the on the on the on the past governments uh, to give the 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 newcomers a freer hand. Uh, and Edward, I, I, I you 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 have to have seen this before too. Yeah, well, you know the the difference between Biden coming in and some of the other folks who come in. Of the presidency. Number one, you're right. Uh, this has not been a, a smooth transition. 
and, and that's extremely regrettable, and it goes against uh, history uh, in terms of what we've seen in modern times, in terms of the, the graciousness that folks on the way out have shown the folks on the way in and the cooperation shown, and that is regrettable. However, uh, President Biden is, is not a novice. He's not coming from a governor's position. He's not coming from the private sector who's never governed before. He is an insider in Washington. He knows he knows where the bathrooms are. He knows where a lot of the bodies are probably buried. So to that point, uh, I, I think that he does come in with certain advantages in terms of hitting the ground running. I, I do want to also address uh, something that, that Saren said and Andrea said to sort of temper my friends on the on the left and the Democratic Party a little bit. Remember that the Senate is evenly divided, 50-50, and the filibuster still exists when it comes to legislation. And while there's some talk about a, abolishing it entirely, there are some blue dog senators who've made it very clear they, they do not wish to see that happen, uh, Joe Manchin from West Virginia being one of them. So in all likelihood, when it comes to legislation, uh, the the president is going to need to govern from the middle in order to get anything substantively done uh, along those lines. He certainly has the power in terms of executive actions and, and, and that sort of thing. But when it comes to legislation, he's going to have to govern from the middle. Uh, and I think a large number of folks in Georgia in particular uh, voted for him not because of desire to tilt hard to the left, but to get back to the basic middle. And, and that needs to be kept in mind. And, and uh, Edward, that, that's that's just a, a really uh, sharp observation here, because it raises a really important question. Within the Senate, uh, where do, where will John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock fit? Uh, will they be part of that center? Will they be? Uh, I, I I I don't think I don't see either of them uh, being part of the kind of the the the, the AOC style caucus. Uh, uh, just you know, if 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 uh, some, some uh, other people can kind of give uh, me. Let me ask Andre. Yeah, we got to get to a break, but before we do, Andre, why don't you take a crack at that because that's a terrific question. Um, I mean, so the funny thing was is is that both. Senators Ossoff and Warnock kind of position themselves in a way that they could kind of be all things to all voters, regardless of where the Democrats were on the spectrum. So, um, you know, uh, Reverend Warnock's uh, soaring rhetoric sort of made him appeal to moderates, but he definitely took positions that could be considered pretty left. Um, and, 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 and Ossoff tried to do the same thing. I'm in my head trying to imagine what their nominate score is going to look like at the end, their pool Rosenthal score is going to look like, you know, at the end of this particular Congress. And I don't expect that it's going to be sort of on the extreme, um, but it's a question of where are they going to deviate from voting party line. And right now I can't imagine that. So it might actually end up being looking kind of left of center, right, if, it, if they actually are faithful Democrats and they vote the party line. So the irony is, is that when I think of that particular score in particular, it, 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 if you vote against your party, that actually ends up making you look more conservative. So if you look at the scores of people like Bernie Sanders and AOC, they actually look somewhat moderate because they just don't vote with the Democratic Party on trade issues. And I can't expect that Raphael Warnock or John Ossoff would do something like that. Um, I got to get to a break, uh, but we have a lot more to talk about on this historic day uh, in the United States and in Georgia. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. 
It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Uh, No one has to tell any of you in the listening audience or this panel the amount of partisan toxicity uh, there is in this country right now. And it's something that Joe Biden uh, is going to face as he tries to uh, carve out an agenda. I just thought for a moment, and I want to get back to the panel, I'd share with you the kind of notes that uh, past presidents have sent to their successors. And, And I just want to read part of one of them right now. And if we have time, I'll read part of another one at some point. Here's the uh, the beginning of the note that George H.W. Bush wrote at left for President Clinton uh, to read on the day that he became president and came into the Oval Office. Dear Bill, when I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt four years ago. I know you will feel that too. I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness some presidents have described. There will be tough times made even more difficult by criticism you not may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off of this cor- your course. You'll be president when you read this note. I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success now is our country's success. I'm rooting hard for you. Jim, this is a note from a man who was denied a second term uh, by uh, Bill Clinton and nevertheless uh, displayed that kind of grace in turning over the reins of power uh, to him. A stark contrast from, unfortunately, what we've seen today. Right, and, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, those letters are generally in the in the in the the, the top drawer of the resolute desk, left of the that's, resolute that's what, desk. Uh, right, and and uh, and and we won't know uh, if if Trump left one for Biden until uh, until the end of uh, until the end of the afternoon, I think. Uh, but you're right; so, it's it's. If I could interject, CNN but, has reported that Trump did leave a letter. I have no idea what it says. Oh, thank you for saying that. All right, so we should have information on that at some point. Thank you, yeah. Andra. Uh, um, so um, l- l- let's let's talk a little bit. By the way, I, I know another piece of information I wanted to share with you. Um, apparently, Ossoff and Warnock are going to be sworn in, uh, Edward Lindsay, at about 4.30 this afternoon by Kamala Harris. It will be one of her first acts, I assume, as president of the Senate. Um, and I'm... I have not seen what uh, Bible uh, Raphael Warnock will uh, take his oath on, but we do know now that John Ossoff, who's the first Jewish senator from Georgia, is going to use a, a Hebrew Bible that was owned by Rabbi Jacob Rothschild, who was one of the great, great civil rights leaders uh, in Atlanta during his tenure as the chief rabbi of the temple right there in South Buckhead and uh, one of the most prominent synagogues in the United States, actually. Um, So, Edward, what about this? We have, you know, forget about party for just a minute. We have a black, the first black senator from Georgia and the first Jewish senator from Georgia about to take 
office. Um, so again, not thinking about Democratic or Republican labels, but just thinking about us as a people in this state. Uh, how? What does this tell us about uh, our ability to begin to absorb diversity and accept it and champion it? Symbolism is important today, and symbolism is important as part of uh, weaving the fabric of our country. And the symbolism that uh, Senator Ossoff and Senator Warnock display today, and I'm sure that it, it will both be, be moving, it should be moving to all Georgians, Republican or Democrat, are important. Just as what we talked about a moment ago, the importance of a graceful uh, exit from the White House and a great, graceful uh, entrance by the new administration. So uh, today is a day in which we try to um, come together and we try to hold hands and say that for the best interest of our country, we'll do what we can to work together. And so I, I applaud Senator Ossoff for his choice, and I, I'm quite confident uh, Senator Warnock will make a make an equally compelling uh, symbol, symbolic uh, choice uh, as they move forward. Uh, I'm going to have some probably have some policy difference with them, uh, but I believe both gentlemen uh, have entered public office for the right reasons to try to do better for our society. And, and I wish them well, and I hope to be able to work with them on those things that we can agree. You know, Theron, I, it, it, it's interesting that the response to the Trump presidency, we've, we, we all have spent an awful lot of time in, in the media talking about how uh, Trump uh, uh, energized uh, right-wing extremism at, seen in its most horrific form at the siege of the Capitol on January 6th. But I'm not sure we spent enough time talking about the the uh, opposite response to President Trump. I mean, to some extent, uh, it, it was it was response to Trump that has helped uh, energize people uh, on the left who want social justice, racial justice, uh, equality for all, voting rights. I mean, is there a point to be made there that uh, to some extent uh, he's excited the opposite reaction? Well, I think before I answer that question, I do want to go back to something that Ed said earlier about uh, now President Joe Biden having to sort of, you know, be moderate and leave from the center. And I just want to remind Ed that this is a guy who has never left the center. He, his whole entire campaign was a moderate campaign. That's why you saw him go on to be the best nominee we had to defeat Donald Trump. And so, you know, again, as I said in the beginning of the show, I'm in the narrative business. And one of the things that I will not let happen doing this Democratic control Senate, House and White House is to allow, you know, Republicans, and there's no uh, attack on Ed. It's just that I think that Democrats have got to continue to be very bold about the new narrative. And so to answer your question, um, Bill, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were direct beneficiaries of the most unpopular president. I think we need to really remind our listeners that he's going out as being the most unpopular president ever. And so they brought him, they being Republicans, continuously to Georgia. And all that did, Bill, was just fire up Democrats. But it also fired up independent, disaffected, uh, college-educated, suburban white women who polling clearly showed that they did not like how Donald Trump was leading this country. And so there was, a, there was the fact that we had the most unpopular president on the ballot. But I think you cannot take credit away from Joe Biden. But more importantly, you cannot take credit away from Senator Warnock and Senator Ossoff who I believe ran fantastic Georgia-based 
campaign. And something that Dr. Gillespie said early on that I think is so profound is that they didn't run a very left this campaign. Like their campaign, their messaging wasn't just totally in the left. I mean, they tried to have a moderate message. It's just unfortunately there was almost a billion dollars spent collectively by the Republicans trying to make Jordans believe that they were radical and liberal leftist candidates. And so I think they will have no problem with governing from the middle and also picking issues where they can be with the more progressive wing in our party, but also with the most moderate, the more moderate portion of our party. But I think ultimately we've got to show that we can govern and Donald Trump is going to continue to be Donald Trump. But more importantly, it's a new day for America and it's a new day for Georgia. So, Bill, to answer your question, um, yeah, I mean, I do think that there are some ways that uh, Donald Trump, uh, by his divisiveness, uh, by uh, his uh, lack of expertise, um, to be kind about it, certainly activated uh, voters. What they saw was a stark contrast, and you either loved it or you hated it. When your emotions are high, when you feel very strongly about candidates, that's likely to increase your probability of turning out to vote. Um and uh, especially if you think that the election is going to be close and you could play a decisive role in the election, that's also a way that it can increase your likelihood of turning out the vote. And so we saw a very deeply divided country with really strong opinions on both sides really kind of, you know, propel uh, behavior. I also want to credit Barack Obama in some ways for the activism that we see. So as much as, as, as Obama has gotten criticism from the left, particularly the black left, about how he governed, his mere presence as president of as president of the United States actually has, I believe, has an empowering effect that actually I think emboldened um, young African Americans to feel that they could agitate on the system. It started in his administration and it continued into the administration of Donald Trump. So I, you know, I think that there are a lot of factors, and you know, the sad part is, and I think the thing that we're going to be looking at going forward is when times are more normal, when the president is boring and not offending people every day on Twitter and maligning groups and using racial slurs and like, you know, ginning up riots, are we going to care as much? Because we still have to be vigilant. We still have to pay attention um, and we still have to vote and we still have to participate. Right. Yeah. Just because that person has left the White House doesn't mean that all of a sudden we get to kind of go back and sort of, you know, rest on our laurels and kind of let the technocrats do everything. So, so Jim, I do think what Andre is saying is very, very important, but, but it also is the question that was asked as the runoff election was underway here in Georgia with, with Trump out of the picture, with Trump having lost the White House, would voters remain, Democratic voters, remain energized uh, to win? So at least in, in, a, in, a, in a smaller way, uh, we did see Democrats uh, uh, absolutely continuing their push to uh, uh, turn around the Trump narrative in the runoff elections, right, right. It, we, it, 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 uh, uh, Donald Trump changed the rhythm of of uh, runoffs. Uh, he became the, he 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 yelled himself out there. He became the issue. Uh, but uh, I, I think Ed wants to jump in here because because he's 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 been uh, he's been kind of uh, chomping at the bit. Well, Edward, you know, just for a moment, let, let, let me. I agree with Theron on at least one point, which was I, I do believe Trump uh, had an enormous impact here in Georgia. Uh, if you look back at suburban, this is just one example. If you look back at, at suburban uh, precincts uh, that went for Romney in 2012 versus how they performed in 2020, Trump lost on average 20 points, 20 points. 
and, and, you know, that's a huge gap that has to be made up. And to sort of also build on what Jim said a moment ago, the fact of the matter is Trump was overall did two things in the runoff. He energized the Democrats and he depressed the Republican vote. If you look at Republican uh, areas of the state, the turnout was far lower than it was uh, compared to the Democrats' turnout. And that's in large part because the president chose to continue this narrative, which was false, uh, that he lost as a result of a rigged election here in Georgia. And so a fair number of Georgia Republicans simply chose not to turn out, uh, as opposed to Democrats who were very energized. So uh, Trump has had a, a very negative impact overall in terms of the state of Georgia. And Republicans are going to have to sit back and go, okay, how do we recover? How do we rebuild? Because, you know, like I said earlier, they still have power. The question is, will they continue to do so after 2022 and 2024? And that's going to require a a, a new uh, focus here in the state of Georgia for Republicans. Ed Lindsay, you get the final word of the second segment of the show. We're going to take our final break. Uh, as we do, though, a quick program note. Um, we're going to do a live show at 2 o'clock this afternoon uh, because we want to be able to have our panel comment on the inaugural speech of uh, Joe Biden, talk about all the other events that may take place uh, as the morning and afternoon go on. So I hope you'll join us again at 2 o'clock for a special live edition of Political Rewind. We'll be back with more in just a minute. Dr. Andre Gillespie, uh, Theron Johnson, Edward Lindsay, Jim Galloway join us today. Quick note, here's what uh, President Clinton left in the top drawer of the Resolute Desk for George W. Bush when that transition took place. Uh, you lead a proud, decent, good people, he said to George W., and from this day you are president of all of us. I salute you and wish you success and much happiness. The burdens you now shoulder are great, but often exaggerated. The sheer joy of doing what you believe is right is inexpressible. My prayers are with you and your family. Godspeed. Uh, these notes are touching to uh, read, I think, Jim, but l let me move on to more practical political matters, if I may. Uh, how is the, you know, we're waiting for uh, Speaker Pelosi to transmit the article of impeachment to the Senate when a trial can begin. It has to be the Senate's first order of business uh, once they get that article. And, and it does, to some extent, complicate the early days of the Biden administration as they try to get their agenda moving forward. Um, how complicated is it going to become, certainly in terms of the uh, uh, hope of trying to start unifying the country, Jim, if not the practicalities of getting legislation moving? Yeah, yeah. The, the 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 if 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 I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, a week or so ago, uh, Jim Clyburn of South Carolina uh, suggested uh, uh, just holding off on 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 delivering that impeachment, uh, the, the articles of impeachment for for say a hundred days, and and yes. and so the the Biden could, uh, but uh, look, it's uh, I I hate to say it, but I I'm not sure that it's going to matter whether you take it up right now or not. Uh, we've had uh. Uh, uh, Joe Biden has already uh, named his 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 uh, 
uh, uh, the Secretary for, for Homeland Security, and you already have Josh Hawley of Missouri, a Republican, one of those who, 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 who tried to kind of stop the electoral college count. Uh, they're already, he's already saying he's going to put a hold on it. So I'm not sure that, 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 that a two-track uh, approach really matters. Um, There are the the Clyburn argument is an interesting one, uh, Edward Lindsay, but but there are those who would say, well, look, you either take seriously what you have done in the House by saying that the president committed uh, offenses so egregious he's got to be convicted uh, and and to wait 100 days seems uh, to some critics like a slightly cynical move. On the other hand, uh, Edward, this the the majority leader, at least until noon, until uh, later this afternoon, uh, Mitch McConnell has now said he thinks perhaps there's good reason to convict uh, the, the the former president. He hasn't put it in those uh, words, but he said that Trump did incite uh, the riot. It, it would be in his best interest to see Trump completely out of the picture and for 2024 and perhaps out of the Republican Party uh, uh, leadership role. Edward. Well, um, I've been kind of wondering whether or not secretly uh, President Biden would have preferred them to simply censure uh, uh, President Trump uh, rather than go down this path of impeachment and then look for a trial in the Senate and that it will divert people's attention away from his agenda and his administration and instead keep the attention on Trump, which, you know, which I think Trump dearly loves. And I think there are a, a lot of Republicans uh, out there who are secretly going, yeah, go ahead and convict. Uh, keep them off the ballot in 2024. Uh, gives us a better chance to come back uh, back into office. Uh, so, you know, Democrats have got to tread lightly here. I, From a lawyer standpoint, I have a little bit of trouble figuring out uh, whether or not uh, it's truly proper to try someone after they leave office. Uh, the fact and that doesn't necessarily mean that Trump gets off scot-free because now that he's out of office, he is subject to criminal penalties. Uh, and that if the Justice Department were to, to do its research and decide that he's somehow criminally liable for what happened on on January 2nd, from a criminal standpoint, uh, he can certainly be pursued that way. And whether or not that should be something that should be followed rather than a more political trial in the Senate. Uh, I kind of think that probably Biden would have preferred to simply do the central route and let me now go on and govern. But we'll have to go, we'll have to see. Um, Theron and then Andra, I'd love to get each of you in on this. Theron? Yeah, look, I think the Theron? thing is, Ed said something that was so profound, and that's why I love working with that guy, he's a friend, <laughs> is that there are some Republicans that are secretly not only hoping that uh, Donald Trump will never be able to run for office again because they know that he's, destroyed their Republican Party that they once knew, and now he's trying to damage it even more. But I think that mostly the American people agree that this president did um, sort of commit and sort of conduct himself in a very, um, you know, egregious way, as you said, Bill, but also these were impeachable offenses. And so while I think the 100-day strategy, 100 strategy is the right thing to do to allow President Biden and Vice President uh, Harris to get in there and sort of roll out some of their initiatives, I still still believe that Democrats have got to fulfill the commitment to make sure that this president is held accountable. We cannot forget that on January 6th, this man, this former president, soon to be, um, encouraged 
and his his supporters to go and do and do what they did. Uh, and so that to me will never be forgiven, and it should never be forgotten. So I mean, I think you know Ed raises a number of points, and I'm going through all the sort of strategy pros and cons in my head. So. You know, I think one of the bigger reasons is that I understand the concern about whether or not you can impeach somebody and then convict them after their term of office has ended. But I think the precedent to, you know, that I think people are concerned about is whether or not that actually gives, uh, you know, future presidents the license to in, engage in impeachable offenses sort of like right at the end of their presidency and then somehow be able to, to get away with it. So I kind of view this as like a player getting fouled in a basketball game sort of with one second left, and they still actually get to take their free throws, uh, you know, um, even though technically, right, you're kind of out of regulation time um, at that particular moment. So, you know, I think that that, that that that's actually important. I think, you know, the removal mechanism is only on the table if there's a conviction. You can't get that with the censure, and so that would be the other reason to, to, to go along um, with that. Um, in terms of the timing of it, uh, you know, having my memory recalled and, 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 and or having other people tell me because I wasn't paying that much attention um, during the Clinton um, impeachment where Senate business actually did happen in the morning and the trial happened in the afternoon suggests that there is a way to do both of these at once. And it may make sense to be able to do that. Um, I think it takes some of the showmanship out of it. The only argument that I can think of that would justify delaying um, the trial would be um, the investigation. And so, you know, that could actually upend the, 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 you know, nature of the chamber if it turns out that, you know, there are members of, you know, the Senate who are, you know, involved in what's going on. And we don't have any proof of that. But since that allegation is out there, it should be investigated. You know, that's the only reason I would see delaying it. I think it's probably better to get this over with as soon as possible, um, just so that everybody has clarity about what's going on. And then no offense, because it's still fresh in people's minds. And so even though this is going to leave an indelible mark on our country for a long period of time, our memories tend to fade. Um, Andre Gillespie, you get the last last word uh, in today's uh, Political Rewind. I appreciate your being uh, with us today. Edward Lindsay, thank you for your participation in the show. Theron Johnson, uh, again, congratulations to you as the Democrat on the panel today for a, a big day, uh, at the day you've been working for. And Jim Galloway, again, I can't imagine doing a show uh, today without your being a part of it. Um, and as we know, you're going to continue joining us for Political Rewind every Monday, which makes me very, very happy. Um, as we leave you today, um, I want to. we've been talking to you about sending us the things that give you small comfort in very troubled times. And um, I'm getting emails at, uh, at my email address, bnigat at gpb.org. I want to read you just one of them uh, from uh, uh, a listener who says, Former Poet Laureate Billy Collins does a poetry reading Monday through Friday from 530 to 6 on Facebook Live. He's been doing it since last March from his living room. His wife Susan is his technical director. He reads his own poems and those of others, and she finds this very comforting every day. If you want to share your small comforts, you can do it by sending me an email. Tweet us at politicsgpb. Um, I'll give you more ways that you can do it on the next Political Rewind. But right now, we're completely out of time. We'll be back live at 2 o'clock. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, keep wearing your masks. See you at 2.